you would open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, we are in the middle of the seventh chapter, which deals with Jesus' arrival at the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is sometimes called. We'll be looking this morning at verses 25 to 39. It's important for us to see Jesus at this feast because Jesus never goes anywhere without a purpose. And when he goes somewhere with his purpose, God in his purpose uses his servants like the Apostle John to record for us, for you and me living thousands of years later, the truths that are found in that purpose. And so if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing Upon it. Dear Lord, we ask 
this morning that you would open up your word to us. Your word here that speaks of the glorious Son and His work. Of the wondrous Father and His mission for the Son. And for that Holy Spirit who will come, Jesus said, to be shed abroad upon your people. As your people, Lord, we claim your grace and we pray that you would bless us even now by the grace of your word. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, last week we saw that Jesus came to this great feast of the booths. You may recall that this is the most popular of all of the major Jewish feasts. But Jesus did not go to this feast to perform miracles or to create a following. Instead, he went to continue his teaching to proclaim the good news. And whenever Jesus taught, there were different reactions. And this occasion was not unique. But even now, when people are told about Jesus and about his claims in the Bible, there are differing reactions to Jesus. So this incident is typical of the ways in which people respond to Jesus. And so it's helpful for us to see ourselves and the others around us in the mirror, if you will, of the people at the feast. But it's more important for us to see what Jesus says about himself. And so this morning, I'd like us to see three things from our text. First, we see that there is a confusion that has gripped groups at the feast. And then second, we will see that there is a condemnation that the Pharisees and the chief priests have laid upon our Lord Jesus Christ. But then thirdly and most importantly, apart from the confusion and the condemnation, Jesus brings us clarity as to who he is. We see who Jesus is because Jesus continues to reveal himself. Well, let's begin then by looking at the confusion that has gripped so many at the feast. Jesus is here at the feast and as is often the case, he is causing a stir. We've seen this over and over again. We've seen huge crowds gather around him. We saw at the last major feast, the Passover, that Jesus healed a lame man to the wonder of everyone. We've seen Jesus feed 5,000 plus, and everyone was excited about that. And then, as Jesus taught them, we saw them walk away from Jesus after he had taught them directly what it meant to follow him. You may remember at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus' brothers told him to go and recruit support for his ministry by doing miracles at the feast. And we saw just last week that Jesus told those around him to judge not by appearances, but with true judgment. And so now we see groups interacting with Jesus at the feast. And the first such group that I want us to look at are a group of Galileans in verse 31. 
John tells us, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now, this group is likely a group of pilgrims from the countryside, many of them from the land of Galilee. And John calls them many of the people. These are the country folk. To the Jerusalemites, these are country bumpkins. These are people who are here for the feast at Jerusalem. They're a bit rough and ready. They're from the rural area of town. They're just here for a special occasion. Now, it's interesting. John calls them many of the people. And there is, uh, in the Greek, a nickname that you will recognize. You may not have known it's Greek. These are the hoi polloi. Now, when I say that, you say to yourself, I've heard that before. Yes, it's a phrase that means kind of the unwashed masses, the the many, the the salt of the earth people. But literally in the Greek, they are the many of the people, the hoi, poloi. That's exactly who they are. So this group comes and they are convinced on some level that Jesus is special, that he's different. And John tells us that they believed in him. But we immediately need to ask ourselves the question, what does that mean? Because we've seen that phrase used in different ways throughout John's gospel. You may remember in John chapter 2, verse 23, we are introduced to people who believed in Jesus. But then there's this odd next sentence that says, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew their hearts. And what we had come to see is that they believed superficially. They weren't believing in Jesus to follow him, to dedicate their lives to him, to be his disciples. And the language here reminds us of that. Because if you'll recall, the reason in chapter 2 that they believed in Jesus was because of the signs he was doing. And what do we see here in verse 31? They believe in him because they say, come on, could anybody do more signs than this guy? I mean, look, let's follow him. Maybe he'll give us a snack. Maybe he'll heal somebody. You know, maybe he'll put on a light show. You have no idea what this guy's going to do. He does all kinds of stuff. That's why we're following him. I think that's what John is intimating here. And more than that, they seem unsure about who Jesus is. Because if they really believed in Jesus, they would believe, as Peter has said, that you are the Christ. You are the Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. But they say, when, not if, when the Christ comes, could he possibly do more than this guy? And so they see Jesus as being a miracle worker, a special guy. But they're not really beholden to Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? When we talk about Jesus week after week, Are you sure about him? Or do you wonder if he's as good as advertised? Are you waiting to be a bit more impressed? You want to see what Jesus will do in your life or your friend's life before you're really committed to Jesus. 
Then there's a second group of people who are also confused. This is a group from Judea. John calls them the Jews in verse 35. And John really is the only one of the gospel writers that will use this phrase, the Jews. And by it, he does not mean the ethnic group of people living in Palestine. He typically means the people in and around Jerusalem, sometimes confining it to the Jewish leaders, but I think here he's referring to the Judeans. So if the Galileans, if the many people are the country folk, here we have people who are firmly ensconced in the suburbs. And so they're not country folk. They know what they're doing. They've built a good life for themselves. They're right near the city. They go into the city to see the temple and not just once a year on a vacation. They can go in and out when they please. They're from Judea. And when Jesus responds to the Pharisees in verses 33 and 34, they hear what Jesus says, but they don't understand it. Jesus says in verse 33, I will be with you a little longer than I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they hear this, and like many others, they miss the content of Jesus' words. Now, we're going to see in just a minute that Jesus is referring to the fact that those who do not believe in him cannot go with him to the Father. But they interpret this overly literal. We've seen this before, right? Nicodemus, you have to be born again. How am I going to climb into my mother's womb? Woman, I can give you living water. Sir, you don't even have a bucket. What are you doing? Right? We've seen this over and over again. And so for them, they hear Jesus say that, and they can only try to understand Jesus with respect to their own knowledge and their own understanding. Rather than take Jesus at his words, they make Jesus' words fit to their context. And so they say, is he going out to the dispersion? Now, what that means is, after the Jews returned, well, when the Jews were sent into original exile, they were sent not just to Babylon, but they were dispersed throughout the known world. And so the Jews were dispersed at this time in Greece, in Rome, and throughout the Roman Empire. This is why in the rest of the New Testament, when Paul goes to Philippi, there are Jews. When he goes to Corinth, there are Jews. When he goes to Rome, there are Jews. That's the dispersion. We might think of it as they're saying, is he going to leave and go on a European trip? And is he going to teach them in Greek? Is that what he's talking about? Because we're not going there. So is that what he means? You see, they're more sophisticated than the country crowd. But they can't figure Jesus out either. Then there's a third group from Jerusalem. We see them in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And these are the people who are in the know. They're sophisticated. They had followed the interaction between the leaders and Jesus, and they know, they say out loud, what some people don't know or are afraid to say. Isn't this the guy that the Pharisees and the chief priests want to kill? We've been hearing about this for months. You know, if you, if you followed the right blogs and if you had the right Twitter feed, you would know what's really going on here. And, and that's what they say. And you could just imagine the way they think about this. If you've ever been on vacation in a big city like New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, 
and you're trying to see certain sites and you go and you ask someone who's a native, where do I find the Empire State Building? You will get that look. Like, what are you, stupid? You don't know the Empire State Building? It's right over there. Just look. There it is. Right? What are you doing here? Get out of my city. Right? That's the kind of attitude that they have. They know it all. They know more than these other groups. But they ask the question, isn't this the man that the leaders are trying to kill? And that reminds us that there is opposition to Jesus and that it's not underground. That the opposition has been trying to kill him for some period of time. And their question is, if he's so dangerous, why are they letting him up front talk? Why does he speak with such openness? The Greek word there is actually boldness. They're letting him be bold. Don't they have a bouncer that can drag him off the stage, so to speak? Why are they letting this go on? Now, there are certain things that you just don't talk about in public, right? But this also changes over the years. And when you notice the change about what you can talk about, it's usually a sign of something bigger. So, for example, you can now talk in public about mental health. You couldn't talk about that 30 or 40 years ago. It was not a topic for conversation. And that's actually a good thing. But on the other side of the equation, people talk openly about all forms of immorality in the company of women and children that men would not have whispered 50 years ago. And that's a bad thing. But you see how in each instance it tells us how there's an underlying substance to it. We know this is a sign of what they're thinking about the subject. And their conclusion is interesting. They say, well, if the leaders aren't stopping Jesus, do they think he's the Christ? Maybe that's why they're letting him talk. It's as if there's some private signal being sent. Some massive wink and nod. And they say, in verse 27... That's a possibility, but there's no way that can be true. Why? They say, we know this Jesus. He's from Nazareth. We know his family. We've met his mother and his, his brothers. Some of us grew up with him. We know people that babysat him. You know, this can't be the Messiah. And the reason is, is they say, in verse 27, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, I would pause here and ask you all to search your Bibles for that Old Testament verse where it tells us we won't know where the Messiah came from. But I need to eat lunch later. Because you will not find that verse. It's not anywhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, later on, they will admit that they know the city where he will be born. Because as you well know, if you've ever been to a Christmas Eve service, that the Messiah was to predicted, prophesied to be born in Bethlehem. The city of David. They know that. They say that later in verse 42. But what they mean is is that he might have been born in Bethlehem, but we wouldn't know it because he would not be on the scene at all. No one would know him. He wouldn't be around anyone. And then all of a sudden, bam, there he is. And he changes everything. He overthrows our oppressors. He tells us what to do. We don't know where he came from. We don't know how he came. 
We don't know which direction. He's just there. We know that's the truth because that's what our rabbis told us. And that's what our rabbis' rabbis told them. And again, if I wanted to bore you, I could bring out book after book of the the Mishnah and the Talmud and all of these commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. And they were absolutely convinced that was the case. It's only one problem. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. So their theological error sets them up for how they have to believe about Jesus. They're very confused. Now we also see a second reaction. We've seen three groups of confused people, but now we see those who are in opposition to Jesus. And it's an established opposition. They condemn Jesus from the very beginning. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We see this in chapter 5, verse 18. We see it earlier in this chapter in verse 1 that they were seeking to kill him. We see it again in verse 19. Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? This is no surprise to you and me. Because this group of people, the Pharisees and the chief priests that are described in verse 32, don't like the fact that Jesus won't submit to them. They may not have used those exact words, but that's the substance. That's what we see in verse 30. They are opposed to him. They want to arrest him, but they can't lay a hand on him because, here's this phrase again, his hour had not come. They told Jesus, we know everything about you. And Jesus responds that they don't know the most important thing about him. His relationship with the Father. The one who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And how do they respond to that? Do they say, tell me more about this Father. Tell me more where you're going. We would like to go there as well. No, they respond by trying to arrest him and kill him. They go again after him. They respond with opposition. And we saw last week that this opposition was so fierce that people were even afraid to talk about Jesus in public. This group doesn't like Jesus' popularity. They don't like his criticism of them and their ways. And they certainly don't like him saying that they don't know God as well as they thought they did. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 33 and 34. He wasn't talking about going over to Europe. He meant that he was going to the Father in verse 33. And that they could not come there because they did not believe in verse 34. Those who actually hear Jesus' words either believe him or they hate him. They hate his words about their sin. They hate his words about what God requires. They hate that he won't let them control themselves and he won't let them control him. A great test of where you stand with Jesus is whether you are willing to sit at his feet to hear him and to obey him. 
Now notice also that this opposition was not hasty or sudden. We sometimes get the idea from the Easter story that there was a hastily called meeting the, the day before the Passover. And they said, things are completely out of control. I've got a brand new idea. We need to kill Jesus. No, this has been going on for years. They have been trying to arrest him and kill him. This is a a, a hostile and a prepared opposition. But there's another fascinating thing that we see here. Opposition to Jesus unites those who have very little in common. It unites those people who actually hate each other. Verse 32 reminds us of this. It says, The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Now you have to understand that the Pharisees were one group within the ruling uh, council called the Sanhedrin of the Jews. The other group were the Sadducees, and they were, in the main, the chief priests. They were the priestly class. So these two groups were together, and they were constantly plotting against each other, constantly criticizing each other. I'll try to give you a small picture of it. Could you imagine if the Republicans and the Democrats actually didn't like each other. That would describe these folks. Always opposing each other. Always saying the other side is wrong. Never finding anything good at all. That's these two groups. But for those who want to condemn Jesus, that's the most important thing. They come together on that. Luke gives us another example of this. After Jesus' crucifixion, he says that that was the day on which Herod and Pilate became friends. They were enemies before that. You could not picture two men more different than Herod and Pilate. One was a wannabe Jewish king who was known for excesses and immorality. The other was a straight-laced Roman soldier. But what united them was opposition to Jesus. That's what we're seeing here. And we can see that in our world today, can't we? There are groups that not only have very little in common, they're actually opposed to each other. And they put aside that opposition in order to hate Jesus. Think about the common cause that secularists have made with Muslims, with opposition to the church and Jesus. It's that opposition to Jesus, that condemnation of Jesus, that brings them together. So we've seen that some are confused. We've seen that some are condemning Jesus. They're angry. So the question then comes, who is Jesus? How can we not be confused? How can we not condemn Jesus with others? And this is where we see the wonderful thing about Jesus. We might expect Jesus to stand up at this feast and say, you know what? Forget you all. If you can't honestly hear what I'm saying, if you insist on making excuses and opposing me, I'm done. I'm out of here. I often think that's exactly how I would react. I'd be done with these people. But instead, do you see what Jesus does? He goes even further to try to reach these people. You see, we often think that Jesus comes to those people who are already seeking him. 
who are already predisposed toward him. But that's not the case. Jesus comes to those who are yet his enemies. He comes to those who are shaking their fist in defiance at him. Those who are mired in a life of sin and darkness and ignorance. That's who Jesus comes to. And so a few days later, on the last day of the feast, John tells us at verse 37, a few days after verse 36, there's a gap in there between those two verses, Jesus stands up and speaks. And this is as public as it gets. Jesus cried out in a loud voice so that everyone could hear him. I have to say, verse 37 is one of those verses in the Bible that I have a great affinity for. Because you may have noticed I have a small reputation for being just a little bit louder than the average person. I know what it's like to cry out loud. As a matter of fact, even when I'm not trying to be loud, people will shush me because I'm going to wake up sleeping babies. Or because they don't want other people in the next room to hear me. It, it's, it's, it's a common joke that my pastor friends will say, well, I was going to talk to Fred on the phone, but he just went outside and called me. And so I'm giving you this because I want you to understand Jesus is being very public, very vocal. He is yelling. He wants everyone to hear. This is as obvious as it gets. It's intentional on his part. And what does he say? Look with me again at verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now why does Jesus say that? What does it mean? In order to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to think a little bit about the feast. I've already told you a bit about the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, how it was a week-long campout for everyone. They would build tents and live in them. And they would celebrate the harvest and the coming in. But there are other aspects to this. And in Jewish tradition, there are books and books written on this. So the men would make branches of various types of leaves and twigs. And they would hold a branch in one hand, and in the other hand they would hold a citrus fruit to celebrate the incoming of the harvest. And they would go to the temple area, and the priests would go and take a golden pitcher and dip it in the pool of Siloam, which is near the temple. And they would come up to the temple, and they would march around the altar, not once, not twice, but seven times. So think Jericho here, seven times around. And then the priest would pour out the water on the altar as an offering, symbolizing God's faithfulness and provision. And all of the men would shake their branches and hold up their fruit and would say, give thanks to God, three times. And this signified not only the end of the harvest, but it signified God's preservation of Israel throughout the wilderness wanderings. And it also was a signal of God's provision of the Messiah to come. That water symbolized the Spirit. I'm not just making this up. This is a great 
tradition throughout the Old Testament. Now, I'm going to ask you for just a couple of minutes to try to exercise your thumbs. I'm going to take us to three Bible passages that will give us a sense for what Jesus is saying. And the first is in the book of Nehemiah. Interestingly enough, our call to worship comes from the same chapter that we're going to look at. So you may remember that Israel went out in exile, and then when they came back, Ezra and Nehemiah led the the Israelites in the rebuilding of the walls and rebuilding of the temple and the rediscovering of God's law, and along with that, the rediscovering of these feasts. And so your Bible may have a heading above Nehemiah 8, verse 13, Feast of Booths Celebrated. And so it's describing this feast and its purpose. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they said, we should do this feast. And what does it mean? Well, you see this in their prayer in chapter 9, in verse 15. They pray to the Lord, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now, as a New Testament Christian, you should already be making the connection. Water from the rock, Jesus. The Apostle Paul tells us that. But I want you to see water providing for them. Then in verse 20, You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for your thirst. So God is providing all three things here. Food, water, and what else? The spirit. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Now turn with me, if you would, to the prophet Ezekiel. Now I have to confess that Ezekiel is perhaps one of the most difficult books in all of the scripture. There are images that are hard to understand. There are allusions. Ezekiel is a difficult book. But I'm going to take you to what is a pretty easy picture in verse, excuse me, in chapter 47. In Ezekiel 47, we have a picture of the temple that is being shown to Ezekiel. Then he, that is God, brought me, that is Ezekiel, back to the door of the temple. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple. And then as Ezekiel goes eastward, the water continues to flow. First it's up to his legs. Then it's up to his waist. Then it's everywhere. This water is coming out of the temple. And what is this water doing? Why is it flowing? Look at verse 12. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Does that sound familiar? Even if you can't peg where that comes from. I would encourage you this afternoon to read the end of the book of Revelation. Where what happens in God's eternal city is there is a tree. And the tree has leaves. And do you know what the leaves are for? The healing of the nations. 
So you see, what Ezekiel is showing us here is that water comes out from the temple. It's the work of the Spirit in redeeming God's people and providing for them and in healing. That's the picture that's being drawn for us. Then we can go to the prophet Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. There's again those living waters. Then if we skip down to verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague which with the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast of booths. Do you see what Zechariah is saying? here? If you want to be with God, if you want to have living water, if you want to have rain, if you don't want plagues and punishments, what do you do? You go up to the Feast of Booths. And what Jesus is doing is, he's saying, I know you've read Ezekiel. I know you've read Nehemiah. I know you've read Zechariah. I'm the Feast of Booths. Come up to me. If you believe in me, you will have living water. You will have so much living water that it will flow out from you to others as you tell others about me. But if you do not come to me, if you do not believe in the true feast of booze, then there is no life. There is no quenching water. There's only plagues and punishment. But Jesus is the one who does this. For everyone. Do you see what Jesus says? If anyone thirsts, whoever believes in me, this should be familiar to your ears by now. Jesus speaks to everyone. This promise that he gives is to everyone. Whoever it is that believes in me will not only have his thirst satisfied, but will never thirst again. Have you ever been outside working in the yard on a hot July Houston day? You have some of you are sweating right now just thinking about it. And what you do is you go inside and you get yourself a nice cool glass of ice water. And you down it. And you feel so much better, right? Maybe you even take that glass and you put it up against your forehead and you're, you're just pleasant. And then you go back outside for a couple hours. What happens? You're thirsty again, aren't you? That's how life is. What Jesus says is that you'll never thirst again. There will never be anything that will come to you that will discourage you, that will give you hopelessness, that will afflict you. The water that I provide quenches your thirst always. And I think what... John is alluding to here in verse 38, as the scripture has said, is another prophet, Isaiah, 
chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That would have been a verse that could have even been recited by the people at the Feast of Booths as the water was being poured out. This reminds us that we come to Jesus not just to find peace and forgiveness. Jesus gives us hope, satisfaction, and a future. The promise of verse 39 is true for us today. Jesus has kept his promise. He has sent his Holy Spirit. We see that in the book of Acts chapter 2. It's not that in this day the Holy Spirit didn't exist and he wasn't working around. But Jesus has promised to send the Spirit in his fullness to every single believer. Jesus did not stop speaking at the Feast of Booths. He continues to speak today to you in his word. He speaks to you right now, today. He tells you to come to him. He tells you that the answer for your thirst is to drink deeply of him. To drink so deeply that rivers of water will flow out of you. You will not thirst again. In fact, you will be able to provide water to others by bringing them to the same Jesus that you know. Don't settle for being thirsty. Don't try and quench your thirst with the bitter drink of money or vacations or self. They will not satisfy. Come to Jesus and drink. Come to Jesus and be satisfied. Let's pray.